The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. We continue our celebration of the opening of the museum's temporary exhibit called Stranger Than Fiction, The Incredible Science of Aerospace Medicine, with the conclusion of my conversation with Hank Davis, a Museum of Flight docent and a former flight surgeon on the USS Coral Sea, a person whose story is one of the many featured in the exhibits. If you haven't heard part one yet, I'd highly recommend you do so before listening today. It'll give you good context for this episode. And you can find it on our normal podcast feed or at museumofflight.org slash podcast. As for today's episode, Hank shares stories from his time deployed in Southeast Asia in the opening stages of the Vietnam War. As one of the handful of people charged with the health and safety of not only the aircrew stationed aboard his carrier, thousands of sailors floating upon the waves with them. Your carrier, the, the Coral Sea, and your air group, Air Group 15, were involved in some of the early strikes into northern yeah. Vietnam. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, that, that happened in February of 65. Uh, after the second Gulf incident, which we all know now from history didn't happen, but, uh, you're you're talking about a, the Gulf of Tonkin and the Turner Joy? Right, yes. Apparently, it, there weren't actually any any other boats out there at that time that were trying to attack the carriers or anything. So, uh, Correct, yeah. But anyway, uh, we were ordered to, uh, the air group was ordered to make a couple of strikes uh, in the panhandle of Vietnam and Vien and uh, Dong Hoi, I think the two places. Uh, and and there were only barracks and training facilities there, and most of them abandoned. Uh, but the idea was McNamara thought it would scare the Vietnamese if they saw we could penetrate their uh, air defenses. So we had two of what they called alpha strikes, where we sent 40 airplanes in for a, a bombing of these areas. And everybody, well, we, we did have some casualties from that, uh, a couple of planes got shot down. One pilot was killed, but uh, it, it was, I don't think it impressed the Vietnam, the North Vietnamese much. They had uh, been at war a hundred years by then, and you know, didn't scare easily. <laughs> but shortly after that, we sort of morphed into a thing uh, where they called Rolling Thunder, where uh, there was a, a, a an attempt to keep a constant presence over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And so we were doing 24-hour operations, launching three and four aircraft at a time, uh, where one would go ahead and drop flares and the other couple behind would look for targets. Uh, but it, it, uh, it just was, it took a real toll on the, on the air crews and on the flight deck crews you can imagine, uh, you know, going Just running all day and all night the fog day after day, they got uh, really fatigued. The heat was incredible. By the way, our ship was not air conditioned. Uh, the sick bay was allegedly air conditioned, but it, <laughs> it, 
buoyed down to about 90 degrees. And uh, so when we operated, we were usually in short sleeve shirts. You couldn't wear a full surgical gown and, and uh, not have a heat stroke. So <laughs> it, was, it was a little different, you know, trying to uh, slow down the Ho Chi Minh uh, ammunition traffic was a big effort, but I, I think it did very little good, you know, from everything we know now that the North Vietnamese were very clever with their tunnels and their alternate routes. And uh, they somehow kept this steady supply going in spite of all our efforts. When we were uh, out in the South China Sea, we were usually at sea for 35 to 50 days at a time uh, doing underway replenishments. That was really kind of wearing, I think, on everybody. The, the two carriers there traded off every two weeks from uh, what was called Yankee Station, which was up north, and Dixie Station, which was down south. The uh, Dixie Station carrier provided close air support for the troops on the ground, and the Yankee Station was trying to bomb bridges and other allowable targets up in the north. You mentioned the, the Turner Joy. Have you been over to Bremerton to see her? Oh, oh no, I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't seen that museum, no. I, I, I knew that was one of the the carriers, yeah, or the destroyers. I haven't done an episode on it. There's just so yeah. much to talk about, more aviation yeah. focused than it. But I would encourage people, right. if, if you're visiting from out of town, uh, or if you're in town, come to the Museum of Flight and then uh, hop on the Bremerton Ferry and you can walk right to the Turner Joy across there and, oh, and get a sense of... That's right near the ferry terminal. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you manage all this? <laughs> how did you manage your flying requirements, getting that nice, sweet, sweet flight pay, along with all the medical duties, yeah. serving thousands of people? How did you pull all this off? Well, the short answer is long days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I really wanted to fly more. But um, so, you know, on the train up period, I got lots of flights. That was wonderful. Then we stopped in Hawaii for some ship repairs, and I got quite a few flights. I, I really had a lot of fun there because uh, our uh, F-4s would go against the Marine F-8s in air-to-air -air duels all the time, and we had a lot of uh, fun and experience learning to dogfight each other. And then, um, but once we got to the uh, area of operation, the South China Sea, they were a little reluctant to fly me because theoretically I was a non-combatant from the Geneva Convention, even though I was a qualified radar intercept officer. But I found out through sort of scuttlebutt that there were other flight surgeons, contemporaries of mine, who were being allowed to fly missions when their carrier was in the South. So I kept prodding with that. But in the meantime, uh, I, I got flight time flying the, the mail plane back and forth, flying in the mail plane, going to the Philippines, taking patients back and forth, and also flyers that were picked up in the, in the water were taken to Vietnam, and I'd fly in to uh, check them out and bring them back to the ship. And, uh, and then I, I, I flew quite a bit in the helicopter. They're, they're, always was a helicopter airborne when we were in flight ops. Uh, so I could, I could usually always get a ride on that. I got some great movies 
uh, of the ship writing in that. And then I also did uh, house calls on our destroyers that accompanied the carrier, but they let me down on the helicopter to the fan tail of the um, destroyer. And I would go check out whoever it was that they were concerned whether they could be moved or not and decide if we could bring them across on a high line in a basket to the carrier. So on, on one of those uh, trips, the, the destroyer was in a pretty heavy swell with the fantail going up and down probably 10 feet. And uh, when my, uh, they usually had a couple of seamen out there to help me once I let go of the, of the hoist. And so when I went down, I was in a horseshoe sling kind of thing. And, uh, and when my feet touched the deck, one of them grabbed one of my, each grabbed one of my legs and just then the fan tail just sort of fell out from under us and they pulled my pants clear off. <laughs> so I, I was out there literally waving in the breeze, if you will. And, and uh, so when, then it came down again and, and I, I let go of the hoist and they had me, but I couldn't walk because my pants were down around my ankles. <laughs> so they sort of drug me into the nearest hatch and, you know, Help me down a ladder there so I could get myself back together. I, I'm surprised they didn't give you a new call sign after. Uh... <laughs> Somebody would have thought of one for sure. <laughs> what are some other stories uh, that stand out to you from your time as a flight surgeon? I, I remembered our first uh, fatality or first casualty uh, in the squadron. And uh, that was a young man named Bill Bailey. Uh, he was a backseater, and uh, he and his uh, pilot uh, on a on a night carrier qualification flight uh, got what's called a cold cat shock. They just didn't get enough power on the catapult to get airborne, and the planes flashed in about uh, maybe a quarter mile ahead of the ship. And so the the pilot, who was a former Blue Angel and also a qualified scuba diver, uh, just kept his oxygen on and, you know, was able to get the canopy loose. And, and he said he thought he was probably 50 feet down when he finally, you know, got clear of the airplane and bobbed up to the top. Uh, he was rescued and was uninjured. But the backseater, uh, whom he was talking to until he left the aircraft on the intercom, uh, didn't get out. And uh, in the accident investigation, uh, I found out the the uh, uh, backseater had never passed the little test the Navy has called the Dilbert Dunker, which I went through. It's, it's a cockpit that comes down a, a track and goes into the water, then underwater and flips over, and you've got to unstrap and get out of it. And uh, we all had to do that in our flight training, but uh, Bill never did pass that. They just sort of moved him along. So he might have panicked. He, uh, apparently, that was his problem with the Gilbert Dunker. But it was a, it was a great sadness, of course. Uh, you know, the first person that we lost. That was a non-combat loss. Uh, I also remember our, our first combat loss. This was a young man named Ed Dixon. Um, he, had, he was an A-4 pilot. And on that very first raid that they made uh, into Donghoi or Vin or whichever place the, his airplane ended up. Um, he was shot down. 
uh, he bailed out and, and made it uh, to the water, but very close to shore. He was alive in the water, talking on his radio. And uh, unfortunately, it was machine gun from shore and killed. And uh, that was a that was a sad thing. He had uh, previously a year or two before it crash landed in A4, severely broken both of his lower legs. And they told him he'd never fly again, but he was determined and got himself through rehab and got all the way back in the cockpit again. So uh, kind of a, a real sadness there. I remember our, our first person who was captured as a POW, his name was Bob Shoemaker. He was the second person captured after Alvarez. Uh, <clears throat> and he was one of our F-8 pilots, a really great pilot. Uh, and uh, when um, he, he was manning up to go on that flight, I was walking on the flight deck and I stopped and he was just strapping into his cockpit. And I said, how are you doing, Bob? And he said, oh, I'm doing great. He says, I've got a, a great surprise. He says, I'm going to go over Hanoi and say hi to Ho Chi Minh. I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, I'm going to get right over Hanoi, going to turn upside down, and I'm going to say, hi, oh. <laughs> and we both laughed about it. Well, on that flight, he was shot down and captured. And uh, he spent seven years in the Hanoi Hilton, uh, came out in great shape. I've you know, been in touch with him a lot since uh, since well, since we came back, and anyway, he uh, he was a heck of a survivor. I remember a, a incredible rescue uh, that we did. Also, commander of that same squadron that Bob Shoemaker was in, the F eight Crusader squadron. Um, they were uh, attacking an ammunition storage area that was in a little island off of Haiphong Harbor. Bill Donnelly, the skipper, says he thinks his, his plane actually got shot in half. That uh, He said the, the front end just seemed to turn into a Frisbee, and it was spinning at a rapid rate. And he was, he was in his pullout from a dive. So um, he, he, he said he couldn't, he couldn't get his hand up to, uh, to do the face curtain ejection, which is the preferred one for the Navy. But he did get his right hand down on the lower ejection mechanism and gave it a yank and ejected. Uh, and uh, when he hit the slipstream, his left shoulder was dislocated. And then he had a, a very hard landing. He said his chute only partially opened just as he hit the water. And uh, so he realized he was kind of sore all over. His neck was sore. and his feet were sore and his back was sore. And uh, so he he managed to inflate his, his one-man raft. Uh, and then he figured out he couldn't get in it because of his injuries. So he had to deflate it and wrap it around himself and then blow it up by his mouth. Uh, and then he got himself into it just as darkness was coming on. Shortly after dark, he noticed a searchlight and he could hear a propeller uh, of some kind of ship uh, or he could feel the vibrations of it and he looked and there was a destroyer coming out toward him from the uh, from Hanoi or from Haiphong Harbor and uh, so he deflated his raft 
got all the way down underwater as much as he could and waited while they flashed their searchlight around. Then when they left, he reinflated the raft and got back in it. He did that for two days because there was a heavy overcast and we, we couldn't search for it. We couldn't, uh, get, they couldn't get aircraft down low enough to see the water. Uh, on the third day, the, the, the clouds lifted just enough that uh, an F-8 came down through there, looked, he had one smoke left, he popped it, it worked. This guy saw it, waggled his wings, and they sent in a seaplane to pick him up. And uh, they took him into Quinon in Vietnam, uh, and uh, he ended up having a fractured cervical vertebra. Uh, he had a dislocated shoulder, had a one ankle fractured and the other one sprained badly. And he had a collapsed L5 vertebrae in his back. <laughs> Tough belly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was just a totally uncontrolled ejection. And uh, so after a couple of weeks, the Admiral called me down to his quarters and said, uh, he says, can you take care of Commander Donnelly aboard ship? I said, let me call him and find out. I talked to his doctors and sounded like he was kind of on the mend with convalescing from everything. And I told the Admiral, yep, we can take him. And he said, go get him. And so I, I went in with the mail plane. When I got to the hospital, uh, General Westmoreland was there and he was pinning a Purple Heart on Bill. And then uh, I took him and he was so glad to see me. <laughs> he says, I, I want out of here. He says, I want to get on that ship. He says, we get attacked every night down here. He says, I, I don't want that. So, so we took him back aboard ship. There's a, there are several famous photos of him in, in different books on the Vietnam War coming, coming aboard with his arm in a sling and uh, with a crutch. And uh, gosh, he was a tough guy. He, he was back in the cockpit in three weeks. Wow. In that time. No kidding. I wanted to tell you about my, uh, my flying experiences. I started to tell that, but there's more. Sure. So when we were in the, the operational area, in addition to the COD and the helicopter, they finally decided I could fly in F-4s uh, doing maintenance check hops after one of our planes came back that had been shot up and they fixed it all up and said this thing ought to fly now. Uh, the maintenance officer and I would take that airplane up. I would check out the back seat stuff and he'd do the front seat. And then if it was a good airplane, they left us up as uh, combat air patrol over the ship. And uh, so I got a number of flights that way. And on one of those, I had my brief but spectacular almost air-to-air uh, -air victory. So, so we, were, we were up pretty far north. We were about maybe 100 miles or so off Hainan Island. And uh, the uh, Chinese had been running aircraft out toward the carriers when they were up there, uh, probably to test the radar surveillance and uh but actually one of the other carrier carriers had uh, engaged a couple of their planes that engaged them and shot down a couple of chinese so while we were uh, we were maintaining the cap up there uh our radar plane said uh, we've got a couple of bogeys coming out and uh, they gave us the coordinates and 
they said, uh, we want you to go intercept them. And so down we went and uh, I had them locked up on the radar and they were within range. <laughs> and all we were waiting for was a clear to fire. And they, I think they sensed our fire control radar and they both turned and headed back to the Hainan Island and they called us off. But uh, so that was the closest I ever came to an air to air. Uh, in the summer of 65, our squadron became very short on backseaters for a variety of reasons. We had some with emergency leave. We had some with uh, illness and injuries. And uh, so the, the schedule got very compressed for the backseaters. And uh, one of the pilots asked if, who had flown with me a lot, uh, asked if I could become his regular backseater. They finally decided if we were in the South, I could. So I flew uh, a number of uh, close air support combat missions. Uh, you had to have, I think, 20 then to get an air medal. And I, I got enough to do that. And uh, that was uh, probably the high point of my whole flight surgeon career. <laughs> but as a, you know, a 28-year-old kid out there taking care of 4,500 men seeing things I'd never seen before every day. Um, it was an amazing experience in, in growth and uh, con and growing confidence. I, when I finished there, nothing scared me. <laughs> I've heard a rumor of a, of a shipboard emergency that you helped with involving an elevator. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, one of, one of the most memorable things for me was that almost doing an amputation on a young man with my Swiss Army knife. So uh, this was during our 24-hour operations, and these uh, kids were getting really fatigued. And uh, this uh, young man was down at the bottom of the bomb elevator down in the bowels of the ship. There were the magazines, bomb magazines were. And uh, <clears throat> he had, uh, waiting for the next uh, load of bombs to be asked for, called up. He'd fallen asleep and let his leg dangle over into the elevator shaft. The elevator came down, caught his leg and crushed it. And he was caught in the thing. And, and the process of doing that, it jammed the elevator. It wouldn't go up under its own power. My corpsman came and uh, got, woke me up and we went uh, you know, down and down and down these a series of ladders. Uh, I didn't even know you could go that deep in the ship. <laughs> and, and then when we got down there, it was literally sort of like a crawl space under a house. You couldn't stand up fully. But we got to the kid. Uh, he was white as a sheet and broken out in a cold sweat in shock. Uh, we, we did think to bring an IV bag. Uh, and uh, we got an IV started on him. And they kept trying to get the elevator loose. And I said, you know, this kid's in shock. The elevator's not coming loose. I cut away his pants leg and I could see his, his uh, leg was spread out to about 10 inches wide and a quarter inch thick in the elevator shaft. And I, so I said, uh, what have you got in that little Corman's bag? Well, he didn't have anything but scissors and I think uh, something like a scalpel, which wouldn't have worked. And I had my Swiss Army knife. I got it out, I opened it up, and I said, 
okay, hang on to him because I'm going to do this in one stroke. And I was just ready to give it a, with a big rip. And, uh, and the elevator came loose and went up. And we, you know, put him and his floppy leg on a stretcher. We had to tie him in and literally pass him vertically up about six ladders uh, with great big husky seamen helping. It was, you know, not a big problem. I just directed traffic. <laughs> but uh, we had to take him up that high just to get to the sick bay, which was four levels down. And uh, anyway, by the time we got to the... Uh, Sick bay, he did have a little bit of return pulse somehow in that leg, and we were able to just uh, put it in a, a posterior cast. And by the next morning, he had a little bit of feeling in some of his toes, had pretty good circulation. Uh, we were hopeful that he was going to keep the leg, but we uh, we ended up sending him off to the Philippines to the regular hospital there. We couldn't we couldn't finish taking care of him board ship. This episode is scheduled to coincide with the opening of a new temporary exhibit at the museum called Stranger Than Fiction. It's all about aerospace medicine. Can you talk a little bit about your work with this exhibit and what you're excited about with this exhibit? Yes. Well, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with uh, the people. What a stellar group of folks and so much talent there. Uh, I, I was kind of... Uh, a vintage person there, I guess. I was the only person from my era that was a, a flight surgeon, you know, represented that group before all the space stuff got going. I read the uh, the printed work that they did for accuracy and and context and appropriateness, I guess, is those things I look for. And uh, it, it, it is just going to be an excellent exhibit. Um, the... Uh, the part I would have probably had the most to uh, say about or know about is uh, after I finished my sea duty on the Coral Sea, I, I was attached to BF-126, which became in time the uh, top gun squadron. But at the time I was there, uh, my job was to teach spatial disorientation avoidance. And uh, so I... I I did quite a bit of work and research work in that. I was very interested, especially in that part of the display. I'll, I'll be uh, delighted when the, when the exhibit opens. I think it's just going to be fantastic. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes, I had my uh, Navy flight jacket. And the Navy had very colorful flight jackets because we put lots of patches on them from whatever different ships we'd served on or campaigns we'd been on. And so I gave them that and I, I had my flight helmet that I used to wear flying in the F-4. Uh, and uh, I gave that to them also uh, to uh, to use any way they wanted to. And then I had a card for the pressure chamber and ejection seat. They they wanted that also. I think, uh, I think that's most of what uh, I donated to them. What would you say to people who who are from your generation who might not think that, like, the jacket is important to you and, and your card is important to you, perhaps, but you know, did you ever expect that a museum would want it? <laughs> I don't even know why I saved them. Well, I, I had given my jacket to one of my grandkids who really wanted it, 
has kept it in good shape. What would you say to people who are like yourself, you know, just kind of everyday people? Uh, a lot of the stuff that goes into museums, you know, we talk about how we have Amelia Earhart's replica plane and we have, you know, the Gossamer Albatross and all these like artifacts with famous people associated with them. But, but what would you say to people who are who are like you and me who have never thought about donating an item to a museum? Oh, my gosh. Yes. That uh, that can be so valuable, and probably in attics and trunks and places all over, there are those kind of uh, artifacts that people could uh, at least ask the museum if they if they would like that. You know, uh, there that's a wonderful place for it because otherwise it's moldering away somewhere, and people are not getting the benefit of of knowing the historical value of that particular thing. Uh, you know, it, it might be a flight suit, it might be a set of wings, it might be a, uh, you know, in, any of those kind of things that uh, one of their forebearers handed down to them. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Special thanks to those of you listening who are donors. It's because of you that museum initiatives like this podcast and our temporary exhibit can happen. If you'd like to become a donor, there will be a link in the show notes, or you can head to museumofflight.org slash podcast and click the yellow donate button. I hope you can come out and see the Stranger Than Fiction temporary exhibit, which is open now if you're listening to this episode when it comes out and runs through early 2022. Those artifacts that we talked about from Hank are on display there, so you can see them in person and know a lot more about him than the average visitor will. Definitely appreciate the story more. Details on how to get your tickets and the exhibit itself are in the show notes and we'll also be doing a series of public programs that accompany the exhibit many of which will be live streamed so you can watch them from home if you can't make it to the museum a link to the museum's calendar will be in the show notes as well and before you visit in person make sure you head to museumofflight.org to get the most up-to-date information on covid guidelines for visitors Subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it drops, and please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. And share the show with others that you think might be interested. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>